Good morning. This week in our Discern series, we're looking at the, the, the building blocks of a, of a sound discernment practice. And this practice is an important word. It's because just understanding the concepts of spiritual discernment is not the same as being discerning. It takes a practiced heart to really become a person of spiritual discernment. And, and, and the gift of that for your own life is that you have the wisdom then of God to navigate life well and a competence and even a confidence of how reality actually works. So yesterday we looked and said, really all true discernment, spiritual biblical discernment, has its source in the Trinity. So it's a, the, the origin of true discernment is spiritual. And then the second building block was, was a simple truth, but a but powerful one, that if there's an impulse in you, if there's a drivenness in you, if there's a desire, longing in you to be discerning, that, that that's something good. That's the origin of that as well, is spiritual. It's, it's the Holy Spirit. Satan would not <laughs> drive you to be discerning. So now we get to the meat of these building blocks of sound spiritual practice. This is really the foundation of everything. <clears throat> it is a true life surrender to the love of God and a leaning in to the goodness of God. So this third building block is a deep belief in that place that the Bible calls your heart, the very center and control center of your being, where your deepest convictions are, your deepest beliefs, in that place there has to be an unshakable belief in the goodness of God. Now, the truth is that anybody who calls himself a Christian or is a Christian believer can can usually talk about the, the goodness of God. It's something we teach our children, that God is good. And it's one of his main characteristics, his attributes. But the, the problem is that in a, in a practical way, again, this idea of a practiced heart, in a practical way, we who are Christians often allow the negative to exist with the positive. We believe in the goodness of God, but we're not sure of the goodness of God. And so what happens is we do not, we do not solidly settle this issue so that we trust God with the things that are most important to us and especially trusting God with the things that are beyond our ability or even our right to control. Some of the ways that we've suffered some of the losses that we've experienced have made us fearful, made us resistant in some ways, reticent to really trust God because so many people that I meet and that I talk to in private actually blame God. They feel like God has disappointed them when they trusted him with something important. They feel disappointed. Now, you don't have to be a Christian long to realize that God's people will disappoint you. And that can often be attributed to God. Sometimes 
we've had such clear sense that, okay, if I do this, this will happen. And the process has disappointed us. And so what we, what we don't realize is that all of us, even though I say it so much, all of us are such broken people. And for so many of us, pain has been a normal existence, a normal aspect of our existence. So we don't realize how fractured we are on the interior. Everything from fractured image of ourselves, fractured personality. And what we do is, we do what all people do, we, we put ourselves back together. We do the very best we can to make ourselves almost like a self-made self. And in doing so, we learn to rely on ourselves. And for all of our accomplishments or all of our, our successes, we often can feel incredibly proud of ourselves. Or we can also loathe ourselves. And both our loathing of self and our our patting ourselves on the back in many ways is an indication that we really trust ourselves. So here's a simple truth. You cannot give yourself fully to someone that you're not sure of, that you're not absolutely confident in. And and the discernment process of God sharing his deepest insights to you. He will do so freely, but you have to also freely begin to participate in this process. And the only way you can freely participate in the process of really seeing and, and hearing what God has to show you and what God has to say is if you have this very deep conviction that God is good not just generally, but as it relates to you specifically. This is one of the deepest building blocks upon which all of true discernment comes. You have to go beyond intellectual assent. You have to cultivate a deep experiential knowledge that I can trust God's will for my life. Even if I don't fully understand it, I can trust his will. And that leaning into his will is the best thing that could happen to me in any circumstance. So I, I'm willing to wait. I'm willing to listen. I'm willing to, to trust even when I don't always understand. One of the moments in which God spoke so clearly to his people, they were being taken off into captivity. Now he'd been telling them that this was coming. And instead of listening to God, they tried to kill the messenger, Jeremiah. But in Jeremiah 29, 11, even though the people have been rebellious and resistant, the goodness of God breaks through in a moment of greatest defeat. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for your harm. And it's when you recognize that's what he's always saying even in your most defeated moments or your most unexpected moments. I know the plans I have for you. Plans that I'm weaving for your welfare. Plans that I'm not going to allow to do your ha any harm. Paul says it this way, even as he's, you know, on his way, <laughs> on his way to a life he had not expected as a prisoner of Rome. And he, he says, if God be for us, 
who can be against us. It's not just an Old Testament thought. It's, it's really validated and affirmed in the New Testament. So, why is this so important? Well, it's throughout the scripture that anybody that really, really wants to live in this interpersonal relationship with God of intimacy has to grow into, have a capacity for the goodness of God in their life. Having the ability to walk with God in an intimate way means that you have to lean into his goodness and in a sense so that his goodness begins to be transferred to you. But you see, if you don't understand his goodness and if you aren't trusting in his goodness, you'll always have a wall up against the goodness of God and you'll always in a way stand in judgment of God and his actions and the the people around you and all these things and you will not experience this deep intimacy with God. Nowhere in scripture has it helped me more than to study the case of Job. Sometimes when people have tried to explain the book of Job, they They've wanted it to say something it, it really doesn't say. The book of Job is a revelation of the agenda of Satan. It's a revelation of Satan's view of every human being. Hear it clearly. God is, is in a way, presenting his servant Job. God has... Uh, a very clear love for Job. He has a very clear uh, you know, understanding of the character of Job. And the accuser immediately says to God, does Job love you for you? Or does Job only love you for the blessings that you give to him? And of course, what Satan is saying, he's saying every person loves you only for the blessings. In other words, you take away the blessings, no one will ever love you, God, for God. Now, this is one of the hardest things for most Christians to deal with, is that at some point in your life, the question is going to come to you. Do you love God for God, or do you love God because God does what you want him to do? Is God the one you love no matter what and the one you trust no matter what, the one that you know is really good all the time and all the time really is good and it's not just some cliche that people say? The book of Job is really answering this question. Why would someone stay committed to God when everything in their life goes wrong or when enough of their life goes wrong? For Job's case, it was everything. In our case, it's often just that something is touched that we really care about or something is disappointing or betrayed in a way that really matters to us. See, the problem when people go to the book of Job, they're, they're usually going and saying, well, why do bad things happen to good people? Here's good Job, these bad things happen. Job doesn't answer that question. Uh, part of the problem there is it's a bad question. Uh, Jesus said, no one is good but God. So the real question in Job and the, and, and the question for us in terms of discernment is how do you maintain your faith in God and in his goodness in such an unfair world or 
Another way to put it is, how do righteous people stay righteous in the face of such unfair circumstances, uh, unjust people? Um, this a world that is unpredictable, insecure. Even when we think we have our security, all of a sudden we see a rash of unrest and violence that threatens everybody that we care about. So when Job lost everything, he never lost connection with God. If you, if you read the book of Job, one thing is very interesting. Job speaks very bluntly and harshly with God, but he never stops speaking to God. But the thing that he says, and he, he, it's really clear in the book of Job, is he, he doesn't understand what he's saying. But he keeps saying, if you'll just give me an audience, if you'll just let me have my day in court, I will, I will plead my case and you will see how unfair you have been to me. And he says, give me answers. And for many, many chapters, over 35 chapters, really, Job is is beside himself that he needs to be able to question God. That's how much hurt he has. Now, you must understand that one of the great things about the book of Job is it encourages intellectual and emotional honesty. In the end, it says, in all this, Job did not sin. Why? He stayed connected to God. There are people who rail about God, but who have no connection to God. When Job was upset, he railed at God, not about God. And then, to his surprise in some ways, in Job 38, we have God answer. And the, the answer is actually a question. And it's if, if you can answer these questions, he says to Job, then I will answer you. Then you and I will be on equal footing, and I can talk to you as God to God. But rather, what Job, what Job realizes is he's not on equal footing with God. And so God says something in Job chapter 38, verse 2. He says, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? And then God begins to detail out who he is and what he can do. How, like a builder of a house or builder of a building or whatever, God, God is the only one who has the ability to put the world in place and the universe in place and set the dimensions. He begins to talk about the seas and the rain and the snow and the light and all the magnificent things that he created, but also that he sustains. And he also talks about how he brings out the constellations of the stars himself and how he designed them to look like the bear and look like the, the dipper and all these different things. Job's, when this questioning is done and Job realizes he can answer none of God's questions, then Job says this in chapter 42, verse 3, says, God, you asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? Now here's Job's answer. It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. Wow. This weekend, uh, I took us to Micah chapter six. Oftentimes, when the world is unjust, when we see 
the violence like we've seen against our Asian uh, neighbors and fellow citizens of the U.S., we see a violence that comes up. Through. Many people begin to quote Micah 6. But they, they, they quote the part of Micah's response, you know, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God without asking the right question. See, the great question is in verse 6 of chapter 6, and he says, with what shall I come before the Lord? See, the problem is that, that we stand in judgment of each other. We stand in judgment of the Lord. And what Micah is saying is the first thing is to realize what Job realized. I'm questioning God, and I can't answer God's questions. God is up to things too wonderful for me. But you see, Micah, Micah, unlike Job, actually asked the question, is there a way that I can have a standing before the Lord that I can actually have relationship with the Lord, that I can actually have intimacy with the Lord, that I can share his heart? You know, how can I really know him? Which is what we're really talking about with spiritual discernment, to know the wisdom of the Trinity, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit to be accepted into a deep place of intimacy and personal relationship with God. What Job saw, what Micah saw, is God is eternal, and we're just mortals. God is immense, we're just small. God is infinite, and we are finite. There's a chasm between us. There's a distance that has to be bridged. But the word I love the most is it has to be mediated. There has to be a mediator between God and us. Problem is, we are the first culture, this Western American culture, secular culture, is the first one who has no idea of the God of Job or the God of Micah. No idea of such an immense and infinite God, an eternal God. So they don't, they don't, they postulate, many people even today, if you do a Gallup poll, they believe in God, but it's not a God. It's not a God where there's a gap. It's not a God where there's a chasm. It's a, it's a God of our own making that we can understand. It's not the God that Job met and says, I was the one who spoke in ignorance. These things are far too wonderful for me. Or the God of Micah who said, how do I have a standing with you? How... In the world, do I ever come to a place where I can talk to you in intimacy? Well, until we get to that place like Micah, like Job, that says, here's the reality. I've never earned and I cannot merit a standing, a basis for a standing before God. And, and until I accept this reality and, and realize then, what I have gained in Christ, that what Christ has done for me and, and, and how he has bridged that gap, how he has mediated the chasm of the immenseness of God and the mortality of man, the infinite of God and the finite of human beings. And he's mediated that chasm so that now God speaks to you as a friend 
The father of our Lord Jesus Christ considers you a daughter, considers you a son, and gives you all the rights and privileges to have access to the father's resources, the father's love, the father's knowledge. See, Michael was really clear that, and, and, and truthfully, this is, this is the expression of scripture. God doesn't love you because you earned it. God doesn't love you because you merited it. God loves you because he loves you. That is one of the most freeing things in the world to realize. He loves me because he loves me. This never changes. And what, what Micah's talking about is how God mediates that love so that we can receive it. His love, the Father's love for us, is demonstrated. And what we see in the prophetic, particularly in this Micah 6 chapter, when he talks about, shall I give you my son as a sin offering, as, a, as an atonement? Micah stands in the middle of history between two fathers. The first father that Micah points to is definitely Abraham. I mean, Abraham is the beginning of the people of God, the covenant people of God. In, a, in an awesome, gracious way, God chooses Abraham and makes him the father of many nations. But after waiting till he's 100 years old <laughs> to have a child, then he says to this man who has waited for the son of promise, he says to him, now take him up and sacrifice. And there was, a, there was a law. There was a part of the law that said every firstborn belonged to the Lord and had to be redeemed. But what it was saying is every firstborn's life was forfeit, which <laughs> I'm a firstborn, so that's a little scary to me. But every, every firstborn's life was forfeit because the family was sinful. And the firstborn had to be dedicated to the Lord as a ransom for the family. And so usually the idea was you, you, you paid a ransom, you paid a sacrifice for that firstborn so that your family would have a future. Well, Isaac is this child of promise, and yet God says his life is forfeit. He belongs to me. Now sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, we see, he faithfully, he obediently takes Isaac, ties him to the altar, takes the knife, and is about to plunge it into his son's heart when the angel of the Lord cries out and says, do not touch him, do not harm him, for now I know that you love the Lord with all your heart, for you have not held back your firstborn son. And if you're a biblical person, you know this is a picture this is a foreshadowing. This is, this is us beginning to get a picture of what the Father is going to do because what we see on Good Friday is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ leads his son up a mountain, up a hill, a hill called Golgotha, a mount called Calvary. And no one, no one says stop. No one says, don't touch him, as they nail the nails into his hands and into his feet. You see, if you have a question, if God is good, then you're still not understanding how bad you are. 
You're not understanding how evil you are, how far from God you are. You're still thinking like Job thought in his ignorance, oh, I can stand before God and I can question him and I can I can I can, you know, point out where he's made mistakes in my life. No. I mean the day you really see that you're so evil that Christ had to die for you, then the Father's love for you becomes so evident. Because the only response to Calvary is this now I see how much you love me because you did not hold back your only son for me. You see, surrendering to God's love is the only way to really build this fourth block of discernment, which is love. And in this case, even as we see the Father's willingness, the question becomes again, am I willful or am I willing See, the willful try to earn God's love. I will make myself acceptable to God. But the willing see the cross and say, I am not acceptable. I cannot make myself acceptable. So I surrender to his love for me as an act of faith. Instead of I will make myself lovable, I recognize reality. I cannot make myself lovable. Therefore, I will receive his love offered to me unconditionally in sheer and free grace of the Father, which when I surrender to that love, John 17 says, because I am in Christ, I am loved as Christ. And you see, only as I settle into his love can I build a foundation for spiritual discernment. I remember many years, I've been a student of theology since I was in the ninth grade. I've read systematic theologies. I've listened to doctrinal sermons. I've always wanted to get it right, even since I was about 13 years old. But yet, in my heart, I still had not settled the issue, do you love me? And I kept thinking uh, that it was so relevant. Am I worthy of his love? You know, and, and is he capable of loving someone as sinful as me? You see, you will not be able to truly go into the depths of wisdom of God if you have not settled the issue. He is good and he loves me. In some ways, it will be no foundation for spiritual uh, discernment if you continue to say, God, are you really good? God, do you really love me? Because the events of life will challenge you and give you at times evidence, oh, it must not be good. Oh, he must not love me, or this wouldn't have happened to me, or this person wouldn't have done this to me. See, you cannot lovingly obey, willingly surrender to someone you do not trust. There must be this deep conviction that God is good. And the, and the, the foundation that settles it is the Father's love shown for you on the cross. Now I know that you love me because you have not held back your only son. Now, let me, let me make this more psychological for a minute. Someone can say to me, I know God loves me. But see, every human heart is always answering these three questions. Am I lovable? Do I matter? Am I safe? Until you have settled those three questions in the cross of Christ and in the grace of God, you cannot move forward in the wisdom of God. You see, you can't just say, 
I, you know, I, I have a concept. I agree with the doctrine of the goodness of God or, 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 you know, I have some understanding of God's love. No, it's his love and his goodness that has to answer these three primary questions of your heart. Think about it. No spiritual discernment comes if you're still trying to answer, am I lovable with people who are trying to answer the same question? You can't answer that question in any circumstance here on earth that do you matter because everybody else is trying to matter. So you're in competition with everybody. And am I safe? If your answers are, are you safe from rejection here on earth? No. Are you safe from death here on earth? No. Are you safe from pain here on earth? No. Those questions will leave you unsettled and give you no foundation for spiritual discernment unless they are settled in the unconditional love God has for you and the characteristic of God, which is goodness through and through. There, God is light and in him there is no darkness. But let's make it more personal for a minute. And settle this once and for all so I can go forward in spiritual discernment. You don't ask the question anymore, am I loved or am I lovable? No, you you say, I am loved. God so loved me, he sent his son for me. Do I matter? Yes, I matter. God proved how much I matter by sending the one that mattered most for me. Most to him, he has sent for me. I was so evil, Christ had to die for me, but I am so loved, Christ chose to die for me. And this was the will and the plan of his good, good father. Am I safe? Only in Christ. But in Christ, I am safe. And Paul, who faced unbelievable (laughs) trials and tribulations, said this in Romans 8, for I am convinced, you understand, that's settled. And I continue to be convinced convinced beyond any doubt that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present and threatening nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the unlimited love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, we cannot surrender to love if we haven't settled that we are loved that we, are, that we matter, and that we're safe. Everything flows out of these two building blocks. God is good, and he's good to you. And he's working all things together for your good. And God's love is unconditional. You matter. You're safe. And the question of whether you're worthy of the love is an irrelevant question. Because he loves you, he has made you lovable. Settle this today with me. Stand on this foundation, this building block of the goodness of God and the love of God that can not be separated from you and Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.